Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. What does going green mean to you? Sustainability for some means buying or using certain products like biodegradable containers, hemp clothing, even bamboo toothbrushes. It costs more to produce items that are better for the planet for a number of reasons, like the time needed to source or innovate certain materials. The higher costs mean not everyone can afford them until there's more demand for these products. Today on Earth Day, where we live, we talk about sustainability, including the people represented in the movement. Coming up, we hear from Sustainable CT, and later a sociologist joins us as we learn about green gentrification and resilience gentrification. After climate disaster, recovery efforts often favor the wealthy. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Leticia Colon de Mejias, president of Green Eco Warriors. This is a nonprofit working to provide a culture of sustainable thinkers. Leticia, welcome back to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always honored to be here. And Leticia is an appointed board member to the Federal National Environmental Justice Advisory Council. So Leticia, I had mentioned that often thinking about green friendly products, they can be more expensive, whether it's, you know, trying to get organic food or, or purchasing eco-friendly products. So tell us more about, you know, the green movement and when we think about, you know, who is privileged to be able uh, to get these items right now. What great questions. And I really had the honor and privilege of most recently working with NIAC at the federal level, which has truly um, helped me to broaden my understanding of the issues beyond just Connecticut. And ultimately, what we're seeing is that the disparity gap, which relates to um, the issues between those who have and those who have less, directly connects to people's ability to access greener options. And you mentioned some of the things that come to mind right away, like cleaner, greener food options, which are not just better for the planet, but are also better for human health. So what we're finding is that oftentimes it's a matter of lack of resources, including time and money. And so when folks are living in a situation where they need to worry about their daily necessities being met, they really don't have those resources to expend upon greener options. I was listening to a show this morning, actually, on the radio in preparation, and the description that they were using was buying paper plates that are made from recycled paper Um, And it was about $5 for 10 plates or buying a pack of 100 plates at the dollar store for $2 was an example provided. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in cases of lack of equity um, and lack of resources, folks are going to choose the paper plate that costs less um, in lieu of the one that is more environmentally sound. 
When we think about eco-friendly products, you know, often the argument is, well, it, you can purchase something, it might be a little bit more expensive on the front end, but it's going to last longer. It's a better investment. But I'm thinking about people who are on, you know, tight monthly budgets. They don't have the ability to even spend the extra on the front end to get that longer investment. What do you think, Leticia? I absolutely agree. And this goes beyond simple products to things like having decent, having decent housing or efficient housing, which makes the cost of energy less, right? So we know that low-income um, residents in our state could pay up to one-third of their earned income just for energy and water in their home. When you're struggling with that type of a burden, you're really not thinking about what energy choice you're using. You're thinking about, can you keep the lights on? Can your kids have a warm shower? So what we see is that those who have additional expendable income or those who are aware of the program services and resources that are available to people with good credit scores in Connecticut, they have access to solar, rooftop solar and battery backup, which makes the housing more resilient and safer. Uh, they might also have ductless mini splits or geothermal, again, making them energy independent in times of storms, making them safer, but also allowing them to lower their environmental impact on the planet and the places that they live. Well, you've been in this uh, space for a long time. We think about, um, you know, talking with young people as well as uh, the general public about uh, sustainable uh, efforts uh, in our state. And so when you're talking with young people, what kinds of conversations are you having, uh, thinking about even, uh, you know, their interest in uh, the planet and, you know, thinking about ways to be more eco-friendly, Leticia? You know, my favorite part of my job is working with young people. And we really have the privilege of working with kids as, as young as kindergarten. And we really get to work with kids all the way up through college. It's awesome to see the ideas that they have, but it's also a little terrifying when you think about um, the way that the world is today. And so oftentimes I have college students or high school students who are asking me what they can do to combat climate change. And it always makes me a little concerned that they've reached high school or their last year of college and are unaware that our daily actions contribute to these things. So they're not really thinking about their personal choices. Um, I find that today they tend to lean towards saying, you know, well, corporations have to make the changes. And while I agree with that, I think it's also our personal responsibility to learn what changes need to be made and then take daily actions in our living to do things like, you know, use less plastic, to pack our own lunches, to like get, you know, glass containers and use those instead, um, all the way to making food choices or traveling choices. So very often folks don't realize that taking a trip to Europe, for example, which is affordable to some people, is the equivalent of what people in third world countries um, have for carbon emissions in their entire year. That one trip that someone could afford is the equivalent of those emissions. So what I'm trying to do really is to help youth understand that each of us matters. We do matter and our choices matter. And even those who don't have access to um, the privilege of a lot of financial resources, we can still make good choices every day, like switching off lights, unplugging things. We do still have power to read and contact legislators and try and help them create the right type of laws. You mentioned corporations earlier, uh, obviously going greener, it can be better for the planet, but sometimes, you know, the, the, the marketing that's used, the messaging, even the symbols on products, people think that what they're doing or buying is better for the planet, but people have to be careful, uh, not always uh, the case. Can you talk more about that? I think it's called greenwashing. 
Absolutely. Greenwashing is a thing. And I kind of see carbon trading as an example of that, but I'll use one that's more common for everyday folks. And that is the plastic bag issue and the, the reusable bags. So Connecticut has a law that they passed about, you know, plastic bags, but I was in um, a store the other day and I, I had a plastic bag given to me at the register, which I had to decline. It was a thick plastic bag. And so that's that greenwashing, right? So they're saying, well, if the plastic is heavy, then you could reuse it. But the reality is, is that we're not going home and reusing those plastic bags. Many of those are actually ending up in the trash. The same thing with the recycling symbol on many plastics. Again, just because it has that triangle that looks like it's going in a closed loop doesn't mean that that item is truly recyclable in Connecticut. And so that to me is greenwashing. I think that we need to really focus our energy on drawing down the waste that can't actually be recycled, not relying on things that are, you know, one-time use, even in our, you know, COVID has had a lot of us eating out um, in food that's delivered to our homes. And those containers, for example, are really harmful for the environment. But oftentimes it's that convenience that we go to without thinking about the long-term impact of the convenience choices. Greenwashing helps us to feel okay about that. And so that's why I always encourage people to really read and, and to truly dig into the details. Today is Earth Day, and we're talking about um, when we have an emphasis, of course, to shrink our carbon footprint. It's not always accessible to everyone as we talk about sustainability and privilege. My guest right now on Zoom, Leticia Colon de Mejias, president of Green Eco Warriors, and she's also an appointed board member to the Federal National Environmental Justice Advisory Council. You can join us. How are you making me making yourself think about ways to live uh, that benefit the planet? Uh, to be more environmentally conscious, not just thinking about it on Earth Day. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Who's involved in the sustainable movement today? Are, you, are we seeing there, there being more representation, Leticia? Where do you see the improvement needed? Um, I see tons of improvement needed in relationship to engagement of underrepresented populations. Specifically, Connecticut passed a law in 1993 called the Environmental Equity Policy. And this law says no segment of the population should, because of its racial or economic makeup, bear a disproportionate share of the risks or consequences of environmental pollution or be denied equal access to environmental benefits. Well, certainly we know that we haven't met that yet, right? We know that communities of color are less likely to have land conservation in their communities, less likely to have access to outdoor safe spaces or treed areas. Um, and so because of that lack of connection with those resources, oftentimes those communities have been left behind in the conversation about environmental planning or environmental protections or environmental justice protections, which really define the importance of protecting people. Um, I think that the youth today really desire in their hearts to do the right thing. But what I see is a high level of anxiety and overwhelm from youth in relationship to environmental issues, especially climate change. They seem really overwhelmed um, and, and they, they almost seem incapacitated as if they don't think they can make the changes that need to happen for their livable futures. That's, that's worrying to me. So I think it's most important that we empower them with opportunities to engage directly, information that allow them to understand that it's not too late to act. We still can do the right things. Um, 
as a society, as Americans, to draw down our demands on the planet that truly sustains our lives. Everything that we have, everything we eat, drink, and breathe, all come from natural resources that we couldn't recreate ourselves as humans. Leticia, can you talk more about um, privilege when it comes to being more eco-friendly? Uh, I know you're part of many conversations, whether it's in uh, our cities or in uh, the suburbs, you know, organizations that are focused on this. But you know, who's at the table? And you know, as we talk, maybe some more details on the people that are left out of these conversations. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, it, all it really takes is a Google search, and you can just look at the stuff online in relationship to environmental. Um, work, specifically climate change and climate action work, has really been represented by, um, you know, white privileged um, groups. And there has been a lot of recent work, I have to say, to be very honest, in an effort to reach out to communities that have been underrepresented in that conversation. But unfortunately, those groups um, really haven't been brought to the table in what I would call an effective and meaningful way. They can't meaningfully engage. And the concept of environmental justice, actually, one of the first principles of the Heminem principles is to ensure that that groups are allowed to come to the table free from discrimination or biased, and that they're allowed to meaningfully participate as equal partners in decision making, needs assessments, planning, implementation, enforcement, and evaluation. In Connecticut, what we really see um, is oftentimes academia leading the way on the conversations about climate planning, climate action, or environmental justice movements. Academia is wonderful, and they have great reports and information, but what they often don't have is a boots-on-the-ground understanding of the issues that are plaguing those communities. These are power plant emissions, transportation emissions, trash is one of the number one issues we're going to come across in Connecticut. And then the other issue that is of rising concern is access to potable, decent water. Connecticut also has one of the lowest scores, or poor score rather, on air. Uh, we've continued to get an F and air rating in our state, um, and that really does harm low-income communities, vulnerable communities, and communities living near power plants or transportation sites. I wanted to ask our listeners to join us as well, 888-720-9677, as we talk about sustainability. Uh, again, uh, with us, Leticia Colon de Mejias. Uh, Teo is calling in from Portland. What did you want to share, Teo? Um, well, it's uh, more of a comment uh, rather than a question. And uh, this comes from somebody who lived in communist Romania for a very long time, and, you know, probably our carbon footprint there was nearly zero. And you come here and it becomes shocking. Um, and, uh, you know, I do some of these things, but uh, it's all a matter of education and status quo. Um, for instance, I started uh, training my daughter uh, on the potty when she was six months old. She was able to sit, so she was able to sit on the potty. By 10 months old, she was able to require the party for both uh, number one and number two. And that's the way I was raised. And that's the way my cousins was ra were raised. And everybody was raised just because we did not have one-time easy diapers. And you know what? I shared this with friends and family. And I know a few other families that followed my model. It's all a matter of education and it's all a matter of, you know, 
we tell young people to be sustainable environmentally, but then we serve them lunches in school that uh, contain so much plastic uh, wrapping that is absolutely outrageous. And then we teach them to throw away any food that they don't eat. None of that food is composted. None of that plastic is recycled. And this happens in school. It starts at such a young age. And, you know, one time I went to Mystic Aquarium, and they don't serve a plastic straw with your drink anymore. That is the one time that happened in 20 years I lived in Connecticut. We never had a plastic straw right. when we grew up. So all of these things start at a very, very young age, and children emulate rather than um, apply. So we have to model the behavior from school. And, you know, one person doing this kind of thing is hard to implement. But if the schools do it, that becomes a different conversation. Thank you, Teo, for your excellent comments there. Leticia, did you want to respond before we head to break? Yeah, 100%. Thank you for that comment. If I could hug you, I would. I agree 100% with that caller. And interestingly, it's a Jimenez principle. Environmental justice calls for the education of present and future generations with an emphasis on social and environmental issues based on our appreciation of diverse cultural perspectives to protect people on the planet. 100%. If we start at this young age, and that's what Green Corps is all about, is creating that culture of sustainable thinkers and helping children and their parents understand that every little thing matters all the way from what we serve our kids lunch on, which is sadly in many cases styrofoam trays, to what that lunch is wrapped in, like wrapping an apple in plastic, which seems totally insane to me as well. So I think that uh, that caller had a lot of really great points to make. Certainly, we could do a better job. And Connecticut currently has a law um, being heard right now about for example, requiring climate um, change education in public schools, which isn't a requirement here in our state. So if we teach them children young, the other thing that kids are great at doing is encouraging others to make change, right? They're those kids that poke us and prod us and say, you know, you got to do the right thing. But we can't do that without empowering them first with the information that will help them make informed decisions. Excellent comment. Thank you, caller. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We need to take a short break. Coming up, we're going to hear about a statewide effort to promote sustainable efforts. It's Earth Day today. It's just one day. So what are you doing to help the planet? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. 
It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today on Earth Day, we're talking about sustainability with Leticia Colon de Mejias, president of Green Eco Warriors. This is a nonprofit working to provide culture of sustainable thinkers. Uh, before the break, Leticia, we heard from Teo. She'd mentioned uh, growing up in Romania and how uh, growing up there was a less, a fewer carbon footprint. Uh, there was much smaller when you think about how that relates to income. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Absolutely. So in relationship to, you know, income, we find that, you know, privilege and additional resources often leads to excessive use of things and waste. So I will give an example of that. For example, um, many folks that I know who work as environmentalists and advocates own more than one home. They might have a home here in New England and they might have a home in Florida as well. Oftentimes they're heating and cooling both of those properties despite they're really only physically in one of those locations. This is something that comes along with privilege. While I also work with low income communities where I find that they're in situations that they don't even have basic, basic decent housing. Sometimes they can't afford to keep their water on, they can't afford to keep their electricity on. Um, to connect to things like efficient heat pumps, which have no on-site um, combustion and are safer, and often if installed properly use less energy, we're looking at a $7,000 to $15,000 upfront cost. That's not something that a low income or even necessarily a working family could afford these days. The other cost of becoming green is you could go solar. Um, I was very lucky back in the day when Kedek was offering amazing solar leases to get solar on my home in 2008. But now that cost could be up to $13,000 to $20,000 to connect to solar at your home, making it out of reach for most everyday working families. And um, the last one is geothermal, which is a great option for people who can retrofit or who have the money to do new construction. But again, those costs are about $30,000. So what I see is that unfortunately, the structural barriers in our state and beyond don't allow low income or working families to connect to things that would support, support them having a greener way of living. I wanted to bring in another perspective. Uh, Lynn Stoddard's joining us on Zoom, Executive Director of Sustainable CT. This is a voluntary certification program working with Connecticut municipalities on sustainability initiatives. Lynn, welcome to our show. Thanks, Lucy. Happy Earth Day. Now, I, I wanted you to maybe follow up what Leticia just talked about and structural barriers uh, to help uh, residents, uh, you know, who maybe want to be uh, thinking about ways to be greener, um, to have these investments in their home, but they just can't afford the upfront costs. How are you thinking this through with your team and even encouraging how municipalities uh, think about sustainability? Yeah, so sustainable CT really works directly with municipal decision makers and people living in our communities across the state. Um, we work to help towns kind of change and adapt decisions to create more inclusive, resilient, and thriving communities. So 
Um, it's an interconnected roadmap of actions um, that we talked to towns about. Leticia, there was co- some conversation about housing. Of course, housing, affordable housing is not just the cost of rent or the cost of a mortgage. It's the cost of energy. It's um, the ability to access jobs. It's um, the ability to just kind of live in an area where you have access to resources and open space. So we work with towns to understand those interconnections and um, we're a certification programs for, for a town to actually earn certification. They have to show um, engagement in a lot of different areas. It's not just environmental. So they have to do something to promote affordable housing, to prevent homelessness, to increase clean transportation options. So if we're talking about housing, they also have to look at how do we actually make our streets safe for all users and design them in a way that they're not dividing communities and that they're accessible to people so they can get to work easily. Um, so that's kind of the level we work at, the, the decision maker level. And um, we also have a, um, a strong support for individual residents who want to make a change in their community through our community match fund. Now, I, I believe out of the 169 towns, about 120 are part of a sustainable CT. Can you give us maybe one, ex- one or two examples of towns that are looking at this also from the equity lens? Yeah, well, um, of, the, of the 129 towns registered, 64 have earned um, certification. And actually, equity is a re- the only required action in our roadmap. So... Um, towns need to look at who lives in their community and um, connect with those folks and then change a municipal decision based on that. So I'll give you an example of um, a project we did in the greater Hartford area. Um, This was about um, towns thinking about developing their affordable housing plans, which are required by by June 1st this year. And um, a lot of these towns were working on plans and we said, let's help you connect with the people who are actually experiencing housing inequity. Um, It's not typical because towns have public hearings at night that aren't easy to get to, don't provide childcare, aren't where people are used to meeting and may not feel at all comfortable doing that. Um, So we reached out in ways like buyers in laundromats and connecting with um, housing advocates Um, and talk to people. We said, who would like to talk to us about housing needs in your town? And a handful of people said they would, and we paid them, um, uh, respecting and acknowledging their time and um, the information they're providing. And they told us their stories about housing, which were things, of course, rent and costs, but things like the high energy burden that the bus shelter is dilapidated and doesn't feel safe, that the park down the street has no trash collection, so it's horrible um, to go and play with my kids there. Um, So we developed this model with support um, from the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving and, and Melville Charitable Trust of helping towns really engage with residents respectfully and um, the people who are experiencing um, the disparity that they're trying to address as both a new model for civic engagement and enlightening um, the town planners and economic development directors and mayors that um, these are the real issues 
And it was, it was fascinating, enlightening. Um, the folks who told their stories um, were really eager to get more involved in their communities. And the town planners and leaders um, were fully committed to understanding, listening, and integrating this learning into their housing plans and policies. We just have another minute or so before we head to break. Leticia, you're still with us. I wonder if you can respond to what Lynn shared and, and the movement uh, that's being seen in communities across our state. I think it's really important what Lynn just highlighted, the, the critical need to have education for the planners at the municipal level, but also at the state level. I would take it a step further to say even the folks at the Department of Energy and Environmental Protections, or like I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, academia, they're really disconnected from the disparities that are experienced in low-income communities um, and communities that are struggling here and across the nation. And I feel that you know, Lynn's idea to kind of hold those meetings, and she mentioned several different things, you know, child care, providing compensation, understanding that there might be some basic information that needs to be provided. Again, I go one step further to say that it's really critical that the state of Connecticut take action to ensure that the people who are making decisions, as Lynn uh, pointed out, making plans, which means they're distributing resources through that process, uh, have an understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion requirements as they relate to environmental justice planning. Because what I see is that although we have meetings and we ask for input, and in, in this case, they were compensated, which is really excellent. I commend that work. Um, oftentimes that information never gets into the plan or doesn't become part of the decision. And thus it's not really meaningful engagement as it isn't directing the final outcome of the project. That, that would be my only concern in that case is how do we ensure that the information provided through the process um, that Lynn's group took actually ends up being part of the final implemented plan and that the resources are equitably distributed. We need to take a quick break. You're hearing Leticia Colon de Mejias, president of Green Eco Warriors. Lynn Stoddard was here, executive director of Sustainable CT. Thank you, Lynn, for your time. Coming up, we're going to learn more about resilience, gentrification after climate disasters. First, it's the last day of Connecticut Public Radio's spring membership campaign. If you haven't support the, supported the program yet, here's a chance to do that with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We know climate disasters are a reality for many communities, and efforts to rebuild provide opportunities for sustainable development. But my next guest has studied what happens after climate events and finds a response often leads to even greater inequality. Uh, on with, with us on Zoom right now is Dr. Tammy Lewis, Professor of Sociology in Earth and Environmental Sciences at the CUNY Graduate Center and Brooklyn College. Tammy, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Uh, one of the um, papers that I read where you talk about um, studying uh, waterfronts that were impacted by climate events and what changed after those natural disasters? Well, what we see after a natural disaster is we have a choice of what we're going to do with the area that's been demolished. Um, we have a choice of not rebuilding at all in those areas because they're vulnerable. That's not a very popular choice in our society. And so typically we decide we're gonna rebuild, but we're gonna rebuild better. We're gonna rebuild stronger. We're gonna rebuild in a way that's more resilient. And so what happens is in the planning process, we have governments, 
and government officials and private developers creating plans to use what we call structural mitigation to make the building stronger. And structural mitigation is simply changes to building construction to reduce the impact of storms. And this includes things like moving electrical systems from basements of buildings to roofs of buildings and uh, putting homes on stilts. It also includes creating more stringent building codes and hardening shorelines. All these things make some sense in terms of reducing the impact of storms. However, the problem comes in that all of these things are very costly. It's more costly to build structurally mitigated buildings. It's more costly to put in hardened walls. And these costs sometimes go to the taxpayer in the case of hardening walls, um, but often they go to people then who are moving back into these areas. And so what ends up happening is that in post-disaster shorelines, people who can move back into those areas are people with greater economic means and more vulnerable people, people are often pushed out of those areas. So post-disaster recovery results in um, changes to the demographics of these shoreline areas. And you call that resilience gentrification? That's right. Uh, my co-author, Kenneth Gould, and I uh, call that resilience gentrification. And so you see social inequality increasing. And so I'm wondering when we... You know, we've we've heard we've had these discussions many times, especially after some of the the big storms of the last uh, decade or so, and public subsidies being used also to rebuild in these uh, climate uh, disaster prone areas. Uh, and so, you know, has there been any shift or in this conversation when we think about how policymakers are responding? And that's a great question, and I think. You're right on in the sense that we need to look at changes to policies because the current policies that we have really exacerbate this inequality. Um, there, there's some policies that can be used uh, to, to deal with this. One is buyouts, which I alluded to earlier. You know, so the idea that um, if an area is destroyed, uh, the state comes in and offers to pay residents to move somewhere else. That's that's one way we could use policy to make this better. Um, but a second thing, given that we are prone to rebuild, is to ensure that housing policies are coupled with these post-disaster post redevelopment efforts and bringing in the equity pieces that Lynn and Leticia have already um, noted, we need to ensure that there's process equity, meaning that everybody has a voice at the table and it's not simply developers um, and more affluent people, but that there's a way to have engagement among all of the people who had been living in that area prior to the disaster. You're based in New York City. I'm wondering if you can talk about some examples of green gentrification, Tammy. Sure. And um, green gentrification is, is um, what we had been looking at before um, we started examining resilience gentrification. And probably where you all are in Connecticut, you've seen examples of this. 
Um, and green gentrification is basically a process. It starts when public officials or public-private partnerships add a green amenity to a neighborhood. Um, some of these green amenities are things like bike paths, uh, new parks, uh, transformation of brown fields into green spaces. And what we found was, while this seems terrific in terms of adding green spaces that we all need, especially in urban areas, what we found was an unintended consequence of this urban greening was that uh, gentrification followed the greening and it changed uh, the de demographics of neighborhoods. And we looked at a number of cases in New York, some that you might know of. We looked at uh, the creation of Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is one of the largest parks that's been added to New York City. Uh, we've looked at changes along the Gowanus Canal. We've looked at changes at Prospect Park. And what we found was when these areas were greened, when the amenities were improved, the demographics changed such that the areas around these places became wider. The areas around these places also became richer. And we found that the rents around these areas went up. And so what happened was more vulnerable groups in these areas, when, when the greening occurred, they were displaced and moved to other areas throughout the city that had less access to green space. And so, you know, the irony of green gentrification is while we all think, you know, greening our city is a great idea, we really have to ask the question, for whom are we greening this space and what does it mean in terms of equity? Yes. Leticia Colon de Mejia is still with us, president of Green Eco Warriors. Leticia, I'm sure you've got some response when we think about examples, even in our state of Connecticut. Absolutely. I mean, this happens everywhere, 100%. After there's an, a crisis and the rebuild happens, you know, things are improved in that area, we would hope. We just saw this in Puerto Rico. It's happening right now, right? So there was a hurricane. And lots of folks had to leave. There's plenty of abandoned properties. Um, they're retrofitting those areas and rebuilding. But what's happening is that the areas that are being made into beautiful uh, seaside places are now going to be inaccessible to actual Puerto Ricans living on the island. Um, likewise, in Connecticut, we see that when um, funds are expended, for example, from the Green Bank options or um, even Advanced Connecticut, and they redo areas that the cost of living in that area um, expands. Currently, there's been a lot of work done by the folks at Operation Fuel um, in Acadia and other groups in Connecticut to ensure that when retrofits occur in housing that um, the people living there don't get pushed out. And they're really seeking to create policies and laws in Connecticut that would say if they used subsidies, federal or state or other, to retrofit that property, that the owner of the building won't then increase rent, for example, um, so that it no longer is accessible to people who had been living there prior to that incredible upgrade. Right. So very good points. Before we run out of time, Tammy, I wanted to go back to you. We just have a, a couple of minutes, but you know what you have just told us about um, gentrification, resiliency, green gentrification. You know, how can cities and neighborhoods go green uh, without this gentrification? What are some models? Well, it's a really tricky thing to do, and I would say there's two really important pieces to it. Um, the first is really to think about sequencing. So uh, we looked at a example in Sunset Park where the community was seeking 
uh, public funding for a park. And they've been very deeply engaged in the process. And they've been very clear about two things. Um, one is that they are not displaced. And so rather than fighting for affordable housing, they're fighting to ensure that the cost of housing does not change presently. So they want to you know, sustain the, the present housing. And the second thing that they've looked at and that I think commu other communities trying to do this work would be smart to look at is they have been at every zoning meeting because the way the, the green gentrification happens is there's typically a, a change in zoning that, for example, would change uh, industrial waterfront property into residential or retail property. And these community groups go to the zoning meetings and make sure that their concerns are heard there. One of the things that the community did in Sunset Park was um, to fight zoning that would allow uh, condominium buildings to go above four stories. Because what's happened in other communities in New York is the zoning has changed. They've gotten high rise luxury condos. The condos displace everyone, the community moves out. And so Sunset Park has community has been fighting to keep the housing that they currently have and the zoning that they currently have. I also think we need to look at public policy so that whenever we want to add in a greening initiative, we also have to have some housing policy coupled with that. And that housing policy needs to look at the current residents. And so if we're going to have a greening event, we need to ensure that we don't just have affordable housing that anyone in the city can apply to, but we give first choice to the people who are currently living in that zip code if there's going to be some changes. So those are a few things I think we can do to resist the inequity of these events. Dr. Tammy Lewis, a pleasure to hear from you about your research, Professor of Sociology and Earth and Environmental Sciences at the CUNY Graduate Center and Brooklyn College. We'll post a link to some of your research at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Tammy, thank you so much. Thank you. Also with us, Leticia Colon de Mejias, president of Green Eco Warriors. Always a pleasure to hear from you, Leticia. Thank you so much. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tess Terrible produced today's show. It's Earth Day and the last day of Connecticut Public Radio's spring membership campaign. Take time to support where we live and all the great programming we provide on the station. Here are two of my colleagues with more.